cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. I am Alan Watt, and this is Cutting to the Matrix on November the 17th, 2009. Newcomers, I always suggest you look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com. That's the main site. And on that site, scroll down and bookmark all the other sites I have because once in a while the main one goes down. And if you have the bookmarks, you can always download the latest shows from the other sites, the alternate sites. Sometimes, too, those who find that try to download and it's sort of sticking uh, or constantly reloading, uh, try these other sites anyway. That uh, It's good to scatter the bandwidth around because um, everyone goes into the comm site at the same time and uh, there's thousands of folk do it. And that's what causes some of the problems. There's cuttingthrough.jenkness to choose from, .com. There's cuttingthroughthematrix.net.us.ca. There's Alan Watt, cuttingthroughthematrix.ca and Alan Watt, sentinel.eu. The last one, remember, is the European site has all the audios the other ones have, but has the addition of transcripts of a lot of the talks I've given for download and print up, uh, it translated into the, the various languages of Europe. And remember, this is probably the only show out there where uh, I'm not backed by anybody. I don't bring on guests to sell products and there's no foundation, there's no big group backing me at all. It's up to you, the listeners, to back me. And you can do that by looking at cuttingthroughmatrix.com, see what I have for sale there. There's books and discs. That'll maybe help me take over. And you can also donate to me as well. There's different methods to donate or buy the books, including PayPal. If you want to use PayPal for buying the books or discs, just give me a separate email and uh, I'll get it to you. But remember, in the U.S. too, you have uh, the choice of, uh, say, PayPal again. Personal check is good from the U.S. and Canada. And you can also use uh, international postal money order. I think it's the only country left in the world you can actually use a, an international postal money order. Every country used to have them, but they've all cancelled them now. But it's still good from the States to Canada as long as you buy the international one. And uh, that's for people who don't use bank accounts. Other people just send cash, and that's good too from the rest of Europe. Or, once again, you can use MoneyGram, Western Union, or PayPal. It's up to you. For those who just get the discs burned and passed to them at different meetings, you can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Esther which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. The postal code is P as in Peter, the number 3, E as in Elizabeth, the number 4, N as in Nora, and the number 1, P-3-E-4-N-1. And it's important that you don't just skip over this every, every day, uh, this first five minutes, because, as I say, thousands of you listen, only a few supports, and one day I'll just go off and do other things, because uh, I can't live on fresh air now 
this whole reality business we they were born into were, were conned with one con after another, beginning with the parents' con because the parents give you what they think is reality. They generally don't know either that they've been conned all their lives long. Yeah, by the time they're older, they'll definitely gripe about politics and politicians. Uh, they get kind of jaded. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they learn to be jaded after voting for different parties at different times in their life. But they still pass on this idea that, that everything's just developing day by day uh, throughout their lives, and they pass it on to you to make you think you're on the cutting edge. And there's nothing further from the truth. Everything that's happening today, the Copenhagen Treaty, the whole lot was planned a hundred odd years ago. Back with more after this break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. Just mentioning how reality is presented to us as soon as we can understand words and meaning. And our parents pass on their reality, what was real to them. But remember, too, they were, they were also conditioned in turn, every generation is. Yet you can go back, as I say, a hundred years or more and find people were talking about global government uh, even long before that. All the revolutionaries were talking about it with a kind of socialistic, collectivist society, uh, everyone pulling and, uh, for the whole, uh, losing yourself in the mass, in other words, uh, all in it together idea, and all paying uh, and sustaining uh, the planet and each other, basically, interdependence, if you like to call it that. And Karl Marx, even before that, was talking about that in the 1800s. And that's what all the, the socialist-type movements were about in, in those days. But I remember, too, these guys weren't just collecting money in tin cans to keep their massive uh, organizations going. Uh, they were getting money from already existent uh, foundations that existed, generally owned by people like even the Rockefellers in the late 1800s, they already had their foundations up, and, and other so-called philanthropists, and many of them were international bankers, the rest were the, the heads and the owners of big international corporations, very wealthy people, incredibly wealthy people, and that was all part of it. It's, it's interesting even to go into the study of... Uh, Albert Pike's ideas and his associations of Freemasonry because Freemasonry in their own writings admits that they were involved in different revolutionary planning and organization in that particular period and uh, we know that Albert Pike who was really the Pope of Freemasonry in the 1800s, late 1800s he uh, taught Mazzini and uh, Mazzini uh, went off into Europe to create the other types of revolutionaries for each society to first unite every country that were, even ones like Italy was made up of different little provinces or kingdoms you might say to unite them through revolution and centralized governments that was the same, as, uh, same system as Karl Marx was talking about the centralization of government and then through leaks and associations they would make an international society that's exactly what they did with the League of Nations and now the United Nations they're all working towards the same end basically uh, a, a society 
where we all, as I say, pull together to sustain the whole, we lose our individuality in the process. Well, you see, that was Marxism. That's what that was all about. Losing yourself. You're a cog in the machine. In China, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, they put out lots of propaganda movies for the, for the people. And in one of them, the main character, the soldier, who was totally fictitious, of course, but uh, epitomized what every youngster was supposed to be, he said he wanted to be the bolt in a gun. A great ambition, eh? a bolt and a gun. From a human to a bolt and a gun. Uh, that is the, the concept that we're going into now for sustainability. The sustainability, of course, is a very old idea uh, of the so-called um, revolutionary type groups. There have always been elitist at the top uh, with uh, the Darwinian belief of survival of the fittest, meaning the cells, those was already in power. That's what that means. And they truly believe that the masses help bring all this about, and then the masses die off. See, that's the end, the, the part they never told the rest of the, the Marxists. The whole idea is they all die off when they bring in this perfect system. They work through sciences to make a, make a perfect society, and then they're, they're no longer needed. They're obsolete. And anything in the Darwinian theory that becomes obsolete has no function and must perish. If it's even kept alive, it brings down the elite themselves. That's what they truly believe. So all we are at the moment is, is um, cannon fodder and workers to bring in the perfect system. And as, as they're doing it, we're already dying off, in fact, with massive cancers everywhere. Have been for many, many years, accelerating through the 70s, 80s and 90s to, to the present time until they don't even bother uh, finding new names for particular cancers because they find new ones all the time. There's too many. They didn't exist before. And neither, of course, is there any uh, tremendous investigation into what they are or what's causing them. Why is that? It's because the ones who fund them for investigations know darn well what's causing it all. It isn't just inoculations and the fact you destroy your immune system and various other things. It's also the massive pesticides and herbicides they're using and all of the foodstuffs and have been for years. We've been poisoned from uh, so many different areas. It's just amazing. But everything is working according to the uh, like a, a bio-warfare technique. There's nothing happenstance about any particular disease that comes along and starts killing people or the fact that people are becoming sterile. There's nothing happenstance about it. It's a, that's exactly how you conduct a particular warfare. You find out what you want to achieve, you, you find the age groups that you want to target, and you go for it. You have all the funding in the world. Last night I talked, uh, I touched on the fact about the, the bisphenol A and uh, the different kinds of artificial estrogens that are in the foodstuffs, etc. And here's another article about it from Wise Up Journal from the 12th of November 2009. It says, it's worth finding out why the Canadian government has started banning the widely used chemical BPA in containers that hold products for human consumption. The scientific data highlighted in this report is one of the most significant pieces of evidence to explain what is causing the plummeting fertility and skyrocketing cancer uh, rates worldwide, along with other reproduction defects. 
Frederick, Frederick von Sau, professor of biology at the University of Missouri at Columbia, accommodated Fox News, and the link is here for Fox News, in performing tests on plastics, in particular fruit cans with plastic linings. Now, they never used to put plastic in, in tin cans and so on. And now they do, even in beer cans, they do it. And people think it's, they don't even ask why. They just accept everything and adapt to it. Now, isn't that amazing? It says here, the popular food products in the can tested were purchased at an average supermarket. The professor of biology tested for the chemical BPA, bisphenol A, to determine how much is leaked into foods or liquids from the unstable plastic lining on a microscopic level. Plastics manufacturers uh, add BPA to their products as it can create a glass-like surface and are less prone to crack. This is their excuse. The implications are significant as in the news broadcast, Professor Von Sal explains that the chemical BPA is known as a synthetic female sex hormone, Mimica, and in 1936, as far back as 1936, was considered for use as an estrogen drug. So they've always known exactly what it does. It is an unstable chemical that leaches out at very low but powerful levels. He says, we started testing it at levels tens of thousands of times below what, what anybody had ever tested before and found it profoundly damaged the male reproductive system. We know it causes brain damage and it causes breast cancer and prostate cancer, said Professor Von Sal. The test involved the purchase of different canned products right off supermarket shelves. Food was removed from the cans. The cans were rinsed with water until clean and left to dry. Then ultra-pure filtered water was poured into the cans. The test was to determine how stable can linings uh, be, uh, are merely with water being in contact with them for only 24 hours. Just for about water in it. Professor Von Sal explained, every single product here put out an amount of bisphenol A that would be in the danger zone. This is a chemical that can alter the way your cells function at below a trillionth of a, gra a gram. A trillionth of a gram. One million times lower than this. If one trillionth of a gram is dangerous and can alter your cells, then it's easy to conclude that with a dose one million times higher, we de de defiantly see high fertility drops and sperm DNA damaged in exposed populations. One millionth of, millionth of a gram is expressed as a microgram. Cans of peas were scientifically tested at over 18 micrograms by Professor of Biology's Biology. Cans of tomato sauce were tested at over 30 micrograms. People who buy uh, juice and tomato sauces are getting an even greater dose of the female sex hormone as citric acid causes larger leaching, more leaching of bisphenol A. This particular test was for 24 hours, unlike the food products and drinks that sit on the shelves of grocery stores and stockrooms for months. Most people's daily diet has levels of the female sex hormone many times higher. Even the inside of paper juice cartons are lined with plastic. So where are the human population fertility and DNA damage statistics to back the findings of these tests? The Center for Disease Control, a U.S. government agency, performed tests on the, on the public and concluded that 95% of Americans have detectable levels of bisphenol A in their urine. 
Of course, an oversupply of the female sex hormone estrogen is not good for boys or the developing fetus. Last year's Canada's semi-state-run, actually completely state-run broadcasting CBC reported that since the 1950s there's been a massive damage done to sperm in the general human population. And that's true. It's, it's been plummeted from the 50s onwards across the whole Western world. And also, that's when they popped the uh, mandatory inoculations for children started in a lot of countries too at the same time. It goes together, by the way. It says here, damaged sperm have been linked with a 300% increase in testicular cancer. That's an awful lot, 300% increase. A form of cancer that affects young men in their 20s and 30s. The average sperm count of a North American college student today is less than half of what it was 50 years ago. It's actually much more less than that. Back with more after this break. Everything that they should know. 
um, hasn't a chance they haven't a chance and Brzezinski himself in his own book Between Two Ages said that he said shortly the general public will be unable to think for themselves they'll expect expect the media to do their reasoning for them now the media uh, was viewed on with suspicion by the general public until about the 1960s people knew that the media was owned by media barons big corporate barons who were up there with other barons of industry and politics and so he didn't trust them they're private organizations but it's amazing in the age of television how just through massive propaganda and the fact they've created an addiction to television people truly believe when the news comes on uh, they're telling you the truth that it somehow is an appendage to your brain uh, doing some altruistic um, uh, humanitarian thing by telling you all the things you should know that's why when you present evidence to the brain dead and they are brain dead um, to show them what's happening uh, you see the glazed eyes they truly do glaze over and they become agitated and look left and right and they want to get away because they haven't seen or heard about it from the mainstream media it's not been on television that technique has worked it has worked they are now brainwashed the beauty if you look into the science of brainwashing there's a lot of data out there um, tells you the last person who will ever believe it is the person who is brainwashed that's why it works so well and people have gone through the psychology of people and the sociology uh, to do with how they how they rationalize their own sanity and how they do it is by bouncing off the topics they've heard about and their views on those topics which were given to them generally by people doing the dialectic on television playing left and right and they bounce off other people who've also seen the same kind of news and heard the same news from the media and if they all agree on what they were told then they all think they're sane but really that's the whole dilemma that's how, how people are if they live in Plato's cave everyone in the cave will agree with each other yeah that's true that's those are the walls there's a back of the cave and so on and so on that's how it is so perfect brainwashing truly does work now I'll put these the links up that I mentioned tonight these stories on my website cutting through the matrix.com at the end of the show remember and you can look them up for yourselves ID cards are back in in Britain now Britain tried to bring in the ID cards back in the 90s 1990s late 90s and there was a row from the public at that time uh, rather astonishing but I guess they still had some testosterone left then and they, they couldn't understand why because the Cold War is over they never had ID cards for Britain during the whole Cold War and when nothing's happening they couldn't figure out what's all this about why do you want ID cards now and so it kind of went back underground they let it cool for a while but kept on uh, in the background working away towards it and they've tried to introduce it a few times since and now they are introducing it starting with Manchester in England and I'll be back with the story after this break
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Talk about the ID cards and how they tried to bring them in a few times. Now it's interesting that Canada already had them. If you wanted to apply back in the late 90s, you could actually go to uh, special offices near the border and apply for them. Then Wendy Mesley had a show about that back about 90. 1998 I think it was so they, they, they tried on this voluntary type basis and even our show was like enough an ad for the thing in the first place they, it'll help you speed through border crossings and all that stuff they've had iris scans and fingerprints and all that done with it there too but um, and that was the precursor of what they called clear pass that's now evolved into something else now but uh, Britain's tried this a few times too and here they are introducing it again to see how it goes to see the public will fall for it uh, because they don't want to push it in a mandatory fashion they don't want to, that, that would be a last resort they might do it yet that way but uh, they want it to become voluntary and once enough people accept it they'll make it mandatory because well everyone else is using it and it becomes such great ID for everything that's how they'll do it everything starts off voluntarily until enough people uh, take it this is from uh, the Manchester Evening News, November 16th. It says, Manchester has become the first pe uh, people in Britain to be able to apply for ID cards. So you can apply for them. They can now directly apply to attend appointments from November the 30th to have their photograph and fingerprints taken for the £30 card. They pay £30 for it. It makes them feel better. You buy, it's your personal card, you see, like your personal computer and all that. At Manchester's passport office, junior home officer, uh, office minister Meg Hitler, oh sorry, Hillier said, the cards would be particularly useful for students and young people as they would save the cost and hassle of getting into clubs and bars. So they're, they're targeting the youth, you see, hoping they're going to be really naive. Anyone over 16 in the city with a UK passport can apply for a card. So this is outside of your passport. Yeah. Ms. Ms. Hillier told BBC Radio's 4 Today programme, really for a lot of people it's a day-to-day -day convenience thing. So it's been sold as a convenience thing, you see. She says, for a lot of young people, this is from the Home Office, this is like the overseer of Britain's security services at the CIA. So for a lot of young people, they often take their passports to prove their identity in nightclubs and bars, and the passport service sweeps these up every week. Oh, my God. So for a lot of people, it will save the cost and hassle of taking your passport, risking losing it, and instead you've got this very convenient little credit-sized card, which no doubt you'll hopefully tear up or lose as well. She says, I've got one, and it's very useful. Now, that's absolute rot, because working in the home office, everyone's got the highest, incredibly highest security you can ever imagine. It's, uh, it's like the old series Get Smart from... from you know, palm prints to everything. They had that back in the 60s, for goodness sake. So this person here is just promoting their stuff and, and talking to the focused children, and that's how they see us all. The ID cards were very hard to copy and were very secure with biometric information stored on a database, she said, she added. Britain has had so many thefts with, with, with data from the government databases that, that folk have no trust whatsoever. 
and anything that the government does or tells them in that particular line. This is not a database that can be downloaded onto disks, she says. Oh, who's kidding who? It's going to be held in different places, so there'll be fingerprints and your picture on one database and your biographical information on another, which I must stress, just the same as what's held by the passport service anyway, and they'll be linked together by another database. Well, come on. Huh? The database would only be used for serious crime issues or identity concerns at a border. Former Shadow Home Secretary David Davis said, The lack of confidence the government has in this scheme is evident by the fact that they've made no estimate of the take-up of this trial. Now, she says, This is hardly surprising when the minister believes it's only useful for getting into nightclubs and collecting parcels at the post office. This is a far from robust defence of one of their most expensive follies. The ID cars will be launched nationwide from 2012 but they will not be compulsory that's to begin with the liberal democrats pointed to official uh, staggering official figures which showed the government was spending nearly listen to this 230,000 pounds per day on developing ID cards and biometric passports between April 2006 and September 2009 the identity and passport office spent 216.1 million pounds on future development projects for ID cards and biometric passports. Spending so far for 2009 to 2010 between April and September is at a record high of 42 million pounds. That's 229,508 pounds every day. In 2008 to 2009, 81.5 million pounds was spent. In 2007 to 2008, 61.7 million pounds. In 2067, 30.9 million pounds. Amazing, eh? You wonder why the governments are always claim they're broke? Huh? Do you ever wonder why? And do you ever wonder how much of that money ever goes to what they say it's going to? How much is just siphoned off into pockets along the way? And we all know, too, that the card is just, again, training the animals to keep grazing, don't be too scared, and get used to that. And once you're used to that, well, what's the problem about taking a little chip with the same thing in it? Remember, I mentioned that Verichip amalgamated with another company, and they, they now call themselves Positive ID. That's for a chip, Positive ID. So I guess in Britain they got to just give them the, the step-by-step card first, get them used to it, then get them the chip onto it. That's how you would train an animal, you see, not to be scared of something. That's how we are. We're treated like animals and stupid ones at that. Most folk don't seem to mind these days, though, about having no privacy, etc. They're already too far gone. And it's interesting, too, that uh, they have a... Uh, uh, an identity com a commissar. See, we're all Sovietized now. We're the new upgraded Sovietized system. They have an identity commissar appointed to oversee the ID cards. A brand new position. And this is from computing.uk.com. It says here, and I'll put this link up too when we cite it in the show. 
says uh, a watchdog is to monitor national identity register and use of cards by business and public sector. 14th September 2009, the government has taken another step towards the introduction of ID cards with appointment today of the first identity commissioner as a commissar. Right? Sir Joseph Pilling, where don't they find these in people with these names? Pilling is taking on the role of watchdog for the National Identity Register and monitoring the use of ID cards by public and private sector organizations. He starts uh, in the new job on October the 1st, ready for the first rollout of the controversial scheme to people in Greater Manchester. The public has the right to expect the National Identity Service to be run to the highest standards of, of what? Of what? It says that the identity commissioner will champion their interests. Oh, it's like the privacy commissar. See, every British Commonwealth country has a, 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 priv a, 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 a privacy commissioner. And they always come out once in a while and say, oh, you're losing all your freedoms and all your privacy. And then the people say, well, do something about it. And this guy who works for the feds says, well, I can't. I've no, I've no actual power. All I can do is tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy will be much the same for this particular area. And you'll say, there, there, now. You know, when you complain, there, there, now. And maybe kiss your hand better because it's been chopped off with somebody stealing your card. But that's the farces that we, we live through today. We're treated just like children. And you get rather sick of it at times, don't you? You know, at least you should get sick of it at times. We never get the truth on anything. Anything at all. That's a reality. Uh, here's one here to do with, uh, you know, we're talking about cancers and things. Biotech crops pop cause big jump in pesticide use. This is from Reuters. Tuesday, November 17th. Uh, it says that the rapid adoption by U.S. farmers of genetically engineered corn, soya beans, and cotton has promoted increased use of pesticides, an epidemic of herbicide-resistant weeds, and more chemical residues in foods, according to a report issued Tuesday by health and environmental protection groups. Now, why do you think that is, too? It's, it's just like the bisphenol and so on in the, uh, in the, in the food you know, from the plastics. Uh, what's the difference here? They've had these, this, these things for years. They, they know exactly what they're doing. They know it's killing off uh, so many people, sterilizing people, and all that kind of stuff. So why do they promote more and more use of it? I mean, companies like Monsanto can't even be taken to court. And there's not a judge on the planet that's going to touch them. That means they've been given the rights to pass through. Kind of like, like, like picking Bill Gates and saying, we're going to make you uh, a front man for an organization. It's going to be very famous. Just speed your lines and be a good boy and we'll put you to the top. That, that's the same with Monsanto and so on. Uh, it's, it's like pathways clear for you. Everything's cleared for you to, to be successful. It's the same thing with these companies because it's a must-be to take over the entire food supply of the planet. Since the group said research showed the herbicide use grew by 383 million pounds in weight, right? 383 million pounds in weight from 1996 to 2008, with 46% of the total increase occurring in 2007 and 2008. The report was released by non-profits, the Organic Centre and the Union for Concerned Scientists and the Centre for Food Safety. 
The group said that while herbicide use has climbed, insecticide use has dropped because biotech crops. The, uh, the adoption of genetically engineered corn and cotton that carry traits resistant to insects has led to reduction of the insecticides by 64 million pounds in weight since 1996. Still, that leaves a net overall increase on U.S. farm fields of 318 million pounds of pesticides, which include insecticides and herbicides over the first 13 years of commercial use. The rise in herbicide use comes as farmers increasingly adopt corn, soy and cotton that have been engineered with traits that allow them to tolerate dowsings, heavier dowsings of weed killer. The most popular of these are known as Roundup Ready for their ability to sustain treatments with Roundup herbicide. It's also owned by Monsanto and are developed and marketed by World Seed Industry Monsanto Company. Monsanto rolled out the first biotech crop Roundup Ready soybeans in 1996. Uh, their officials declined to comment on the report, but the Biotechnology Industry Organization, of which Monsanto is a member, said the popularity of herbicide-resistant crops showed their value outweighs any associated detriments. All the deaths are caused out there and massive cancers uh, uh, are simply outweighed by the fact that uh, that, uh, they're very popular crops by farmers. Farmers like them. It says here, and it says that herbicide-resistant crops are incredibly popular with farmers. They help them manage their weed problems in a way traditional crops don't, said Mike Wach, bio, BIO, Managing Director of Science and Regulatory Affairs. Well, maybe they should remember, maybe the farmers will like them, but when they're killing all their customers off, uh, they start losing some business, you know. It says here, if a farmer feels a crop is causing them more trouble than it's worth, they'll stop using it. Walker said, farmers are continuing to adopt these crops because they provide benefits, not liabilities and problems. That's because they haven't had enough lawsuits yet, because there's nobody organized enough amongst the public to take on a, a mass case. Uh, bio officials reported to a report earlier this year by PG Economics Limited that said the volume of herbicides used in biotech soybean crops globally decreased by 161 million pounds, or 4.6 percent, from 96 to 2007. The report by the Environment and the Environmental Group states that a key problem resulting from the increase in herbicide use is the emergence of superweeds, which are difficult to kill because they become resistant to the herbicides. So they're using glyphosate-resistant weeds, uh, weed killer now, or, or something. This is glyphosate-resistant weeds now infesting millions of acres. Farmers face rising costs coupled with sometimes major yield losses. So why are farmers liking this stuff when it's actually causing them all these problems now? And the environmental impact of weed management systems will surely rise, said Charles Benbrook, chief scientist at the Organic Centre. The group's additionally criticized agriculture's biotechnology industry for claiming that higher costs for genetically engineered seeds are justified by multiple benefits to farmers, including decreased spending on pesticides. They said biotech corn seed prices in 2010 could be almost three times the cost of conventional seed, while new enhanced biotech soybean seed for 2010 could be 42% more than the original biotech version. So everything's actually going up and up and up. I don't care if the farmers like it or not. So is the death rate and all the other problems it is causing. Quite something, eh? Big business, but it's, it's more than just big business. It's a mandate to take over the food supply. 
you find, as I say, in that book it was written that um, uh, I think it was uh, eco-science, I've mentioned it quite a few times, that Holdren was involved in. Uh, they talked about that, taking over the, of the entire woods, uh, food supply off the planet. And they were right along with the United Nations agenda, the Ministry of Agriculture, this is in their agenda, because uh, Holdren and uh, Paul Ehrlich said that this, uh, this group that could take over the entire food supply could then distribute it to each country and never put the, the quota up forcing each country to bring down their populations or you'd starve and these people are all in power right now right now as they're heading off for the Copenhagen agreement now the agreement, don't believe all this rubbish of the, the Copenhagen agreement where they're telling you well you see we haven't got anything ready yet well what they have got ready is an agreement to agree on everything that will be in the next agreement that's what it's about that's what it's about. A promise to agree with everything that they put down on the next agreement. That's what it's all about right now. And boy, are we going to get hammered with incredible costs that no one saw coming on everything. And punish for every jewel of energy you use. And everything that you buy a carbon tax on everything you buy personal carbon taxes also will be sent your way and you have to pay up or else they'll burn you into the ground and release all that carbon into the air but that's the kind of world that's used and all this rubbish with global warming and carbon taxes is just the old communist method upgraded to take over the entire planet and the communists are, are not the little guys with dungarees and working boots they never were at the top it's a high, very very stinking rich intelligentsia that runs it all the ones who already run the banks and own them as well back with more after this break is cutting through the matrix and I'll go to the callers now and is uh, Steve from Connecticut there hello hello is that Steve yes right yeah got you how are you not so bad yeah uh yeah I just started listening to your uh, podcast recently so I don't know if you've already covered this I noticed you have a, a big background in the, the music industry uh-huh. I was just wondering if you ever did a, a show on the uh, as far as the involvement of uh uh, Alistair Crowley. Oh yeah, I've, I've done quite a few. If you go into the archive section, um, you may even go back a couple of years. But I've I've gone through a lot of Crowley's history and his influence on uh, on the on this, the supposed music industry. But really, it's a it's a form of Freemasonry that they bring into the youth uh, culture, especially those that were helping lead the culture. I mean, the culture is guided at all times by music and uh, the movies and so on. It goes in a deliberate direction. It's not happenstance. And uh, Crowley, his whole thing was to do with mysticism, and that was to get the youth into uh, the OTO, basically. And it was so prevalent. I've also done um, a lot on uh, how the U.S. Uh, music industry started to where it started, and uh, Laurel Canyon in the States, and to show you that even some of the biggest guys there, the biggest people who were put up there as music stars, were actually uh, children from high military 
families themselves. Even though they were pushing all the radical um, anti-government stuff, they were all, uh, even Madonna, for goodness sake, you know, I mean, uh, her, her whole family were um, all into the higher echelons of military intelligence. Yeah. Isn't the Beatles sort of like involved in... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I've gone through the Beatles too because they were part of the phenomena. What they did was give two particular sides, as always do a dialectic. They gave the stones for the for one type of, of um, uh, youngster that was still into... Um, uh, the sort of yelling, angry kind of stuff, you know, or the show-off stuff, the kind of immature, and then they gave the Beatles for the other group, the more, um, the ones that thought they were more intellectual, and they actually had stuff in the, in the newspapers at the time about the two kinds competing, uh, but they weren't competing at all, they were just put out just to lead their own groups, the Pied Pipers, and how, um, Theodore uh, Adorno was the guy who owned all the rights of the Beatles songs up until his death and then Michael Jackson bought over the rights to them and um, Paul McCartney uh, in fact tried to buy the rights when Adorno died but uh, it was Jackson's uh, bid outdid him and now that Jackson's dead I guess Paul McCartney will, will be back in again trying to get them when they go up for auction which they will go up for auction again yeah your opinion about as far as two fat, uh, battling factions within the, the Freemasons because uh, I guess Andrew Jackson was a Freemason mm -hmm. he went after the banks contradiction there. There's no real contradiction because you understand that masonry really goes into uh, capitalistic techniques where it's essential that you use the opposites to create conflict. It's a, it's a dialectic in motion in fact. Things would be static unless you have conflict and out of the conflict becomes uh, a synthesis and then a synthesis becomes a new thesis and then you go on forever. That's what they call progress but it's directed progress. So they create the battles, uh, they, they create the outcomes then that, that gives you a new thesis to go on with and, and that's what communism was based on as well same thing yeah but thanks for calling that's the end of the show and for the ones that couldn't get around to please call back tomorrow from Hamish myself Ontario Canada it's good night to me your god or your god's go with you